This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, joining us now is Ken Mann, news anchor reporter for uh, CHML. I'm uh, just removing the pens from his eyes right now. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, how you doing? You oh, look, yeah. You, you, did you just run the marathon today, or were you just down at City Hall? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Actually, uh I'd be done the bay by now if I there, started at the same time that meeting that, started, and they're still on the first third of the delegation. That, now, so. what does that say? I can run a marathon faster than we can get through an LRT meeting at City Hall. By the way, since we brought it up, uh, how did you do this year at the uh, big race? Oh, not too bad. I'm a, a little slower than the last couple, but it, it was tougher weather conditions, I'd say. Yeah, and, very uh, much so, so. You know, pretty solid. Two hours, 13 minutes, which is... Uh, and what was Which your good. what was your best so far? Two oh eight. Oh, well, what's that? Come on, yeah. good for you. Congratulations, and yeah, of course, team captain this year. Good yeah, work. yeah, that was fun too, and that, that was a different experience. Maybe you were too busy worrying. You were too busy worrying about all the stuff. That's why you were so slow. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, what is it like down there? Just describe to some who've maybe not been to one of these things. What's it like when you get a group like this together, or groups like this together? Well, uh, uh, today's meeting is is a different kind of a meeting, of course, because it's it's all related to this one single project, and there are many many different aspects of it being discussed today. Yeah. Um, so, it's starting out with some forty. I forget what the number is. It's more than 40 public delegations today. and They started around 9.30 this morning. Uh, when I left to head back about a half an hour ago, I think they were on about number 10 or 11. So they've, they've got a long way to go. It's going to be mm-hmm. well into this afternoon before they are done hearing from the public, both right. for and against the project. And then they have the environmental report, the, the updated environmental report to consider. Uh, that's a major document that, if approved, leads to... Uh, it gets us closer anyway to finalizing the agreement between Metrolinx and the city and ultimately a uh, request for qualifications and finding a, a builder for, for the LRT line. Uh, they also have to still decide whether to add that Bay Street stop that they've been mm-hmm. talking about for yep. quite a while now. And there's an update on today's agenda about the bus rapid transit line that was added to the project recently that would go from the harbor up to the airport. Right. So... Yeah, they may or may not still be there Today's, around this time tomorrow. Today is the day you do have to have some sympathy for the council members today. That's it's, for sure. It's a big, that's a long it's one. A big one. So typical cast of characters in these meetings, people that you've seen over time that are just presenting the same sort of cases, the same yeah, sort I of mean, refined cases. Yeah, I mean, you do hear from uh, Is there anything of, new here? Uh, well, I in this portion of it anyway. so. I, I mean, I, I'd never want to downplay the importance of public opinion. Right. But, right. I, I mean, a lot of this we've heard before and we've heard from a lot of this the, a lot of the speakers as yeah. well one thing i would say today a lot of the at least the early speakers have been opponents we've mm-hmm. heard a lot of opposition to the project over the first couple of hours today um are they that may in? just be the order that they're placed in who is that is that determined is there are they placed in a certain i, order? I don't th- i think they're just random supposedly placed by the order that they they uh, request. Oh, good point. So, uh, yeah, but for whatever reason, a lot of the early, a lot of the early voices today are, are opposition voices, and they've brought up a lot of concerns, everything from the costs of the project to questions about whether the propo- or, or projected economic benefits are real. Uh, of course, there's fears among business people along the line of what the impact will be on them, especially during the construction portion, mm-hmm. which will go on for quite some time, and whether they can survive that. Uh, um, there's opposition to the f- the route itself, and that it doesn't pass enough 
real destination points to be a real effective mm-hmm. LRT line. And then you've got uh, uh, what else? Uh, the loss of traffic lanes is another right, right. another thing that uh, people are are worried about and upset about. And and whether a billion dollars could be better spent on infrastructure upgrades. <laughs> and uh, so you know we've, we've heard it all. So that far question today. isn't even you. you uh, that that question shouldn't even be debated right now. Uh, but that's another story. Uh, asking a lot of questions, the same cast, cast of characters, are they getting any more answers or will they out of this? What's the objective of all of well, this? Well, that's hard to say because uh, until we actually get to the report later today, mm-hmm. they won't really have a chance to, to see whether the answers to those questions are there or not. My guess is that we probably still don't have the answer that everybody is really looking for in terms of operating costs because yeah. we know that the province is paying for the, the construction, the capital costs. But mm-hmm. uh, the operating cost and what that will be over time is, has been a big and added a big, infrastructure a big cost as question. Well. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but that's not part of the environmental report. I wouldn't no. say, and that's uh, really what today's meeting's about. So, getting back to that, this is about an environmental report. Getting through this massive document, as you as you've said, will that be digested during these meetings, or is that for something later on? The, the, this massive document that they've all had to consume. Yeah, I, I mean they've had but, it for a while now. It's been out, so uh, they should have all have had a chance to uh, read all two hundred and some pages right. of it and but i'm but i'm sure there'll be a lot of questions and counselors will want clarification and, right. and answers to things that are within that document that would be my guess i would not be the least bit surprised and this is just a uh, personal prediction mm-hmm. if you will mm-hmm. that they end up referring this at the end of the day and it comes back again because of well, just some sim- and questions but that's just guesswork on my part and and you know, experience and having covered a lot of meetings. But you, well, they've done that uh, with things that are certainly a lot less complicated than this. Mm-hmm. So this would certainly seem warranted probably in in this case. Uh, so at the end of the day, what do they hope to accomplish with all of this? What's the objective here? Well, uh, really, this, this environmental report, if it is mm-hmm. approved, it moves the project that much further to the down next the stage, line. Yeah. It, what it does is it, it, it sets the stage for uh, because approval the province has to approve the environmental report before the project can move forward right so if the city approves what they see today and they forward it to the province and the province likes what it sees as well Green light. um and they've been working together on it so mm-hmm. i'd imagine they would then you can move i believe to the rf which is looking for P people or to, RFQ for stage, people to build which, it. which gets closer to to finding somebody to build the system, right? Yeah. Uh, will can this be stalled at any point during this stage? Could this? What could happen? Well, there could, could it go off? That's the rails? one of the billion dollar questions. Yeah. Uh, well, really, billion dollar questions. Yeah. In yeah. this case, um, and certainly there are counselors who who continue to uh, push and and really indicate that they remain opposed to this project. So there there will be. Uh, there are those who who still I I think believe that they can they can stall or significantly approve this project in in one way or another. Uh, how much discussion has there been on what else we can do with this money? Because again, getting back to your earlier point, it seems that that's not really open here. That's, I mean, that's, that's not yeah, really open that's for debate. Not really what this is about at all. No, um, no. 
but there's still the money, a lot of people. Frank, the money is for rapid transit. Exactly, yeah. and part of her greater plan or the liberal greater plan. So, you know, do we still see politicians or leaders still leaning in that direction that, you know, we could do something else with this? Because there's certainly a segment of the population that thinks Yeah, that. you hear it. You're still hearing it from the delegations. Yeah. Even as, as recently as an hour ago. I, I, yeah. That was, that was the main point one of them brought forward. I haven't heard a lot of that from the councillors yeah. at this point. That but, ship uh, sail. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't know. We'll see. I, I wouldn't want to presuppose the ship has sailed because I've seen a lot of things over the years Good at, point, at City Hall. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you think this is going to drag out till the end of the afternoon? Uh, oh, going I, we're going to be well into this evening, actually. I, as far as the, my, as far as listening is, to people. Oh, the the people, yeah. Sometime this afternoon, they'll get through the delegations, I would think, and then uh, Paul Johnson will present his two hundred page right. environmental update report on the project. And thank uh, goodness they I have say, him they to still di- have to discuss the the Bay Street stop as well, and the update on the rapid transit line from uh, the airport to the the water as well. So there's a long way to go today. So the evening, stay hydrated. The that's right. A lot of the same rules for marathon. <laughs> you know, apply really, here, Ken. Yeah, they should have a fruit table and people just passing you drinks as you walk by the hallway. <laughs> uh, really, it sounds like the most interesting part of this meeting will happen in the early evening hours tonight. Uh, well, I mean, it's all interesting because it's such a major transformative yeah. project, and whether you are supportive or in opposition to it, it, it certainly has a, a big impact and it's certainly a big talking point on all levels. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's always interesting to see which way which way things are going to go. Wow. All right. Well, like you, like you said, hydrate and don't forget your pillow. That's right. Pillow and your slippers. <laughs> uh, Ken Mann has been with us, of course, news anchor reporter for uh, CHML, down at City Hall and hunkering down for the big uh, LRT meetings, which will, uh, of course, continue right into the early evening hours. Thank you, Ken. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Of course, uh, the LRT meetings that are going down now on uh, at City Council uh, which will, as Ken Mann sa- uh, uh, said, can- will continue pretty much into the early evening hours. Uh, should be finished listening to uh, people uh, present their cases by uh, later on this afternoon. And then, of course, uh, Paul Johnson goes from there and uh, starts to decode some of this massive document that uh, is before council right now. Uh, let's bring in Cheryl St. James. She has been attending the meeting, Get what her, uh, see what her take is on all of this, and she's with us now. Hello, Cheryl. How are you today? Hi, Scott. Thank you. I'm, I'm great. Thanks for having me today. Well, you're more than welcome. So tell us what your position is on this, Cheryl. Um, basically, um, from the get-go, I was very excited about the um, possibility that Hamilton would receive an LRT um, for a lot of reasons. Um, if anybody has ever done the drive from Hamilton to Toronto, they understand that um, it's quite quite a feat to get through that two hours of traffic. Uh, especially with the amount of emissions, uh, et cetera, that are being emitted along that ride. And I was pretty excited until I started learning about the plan, which was released uh, last year. And the more that I started delving into the plan, the more I, I realized that this wasn't necessarily in the best interest of all Hamiltonians. What don't you like about this? What changed your mind? Well, they've changed the plan, Scott, um, since the original plan. As you know, it was supposed to go to Eastgate, which would have mm-hmm. then been closer to a connection for the GO, etc. It's um, going from 
the destination of a master, which is a destination, and that's what a successful LRT does. Mm. However, from there, it takes us to the Queenston Traffic Circle, which is not a destination. Right. So you're, for you, it started to go bad once they scrapped the Eastgate Square portion of it. Correct. I, I mean, there's, there's a lot of other possibilities. Um, when dealing with the North Carolina Charlotte Communications Office and also Salt Lake City, um, what they have two of the most successful LRTs um, in North America. In fact, Salt Lake City is the only LRT that has actually gone up in ridership anywhere um, in North America. And what they did, Scott, is they started on the outside area first in their industrial area. They built that area up, and then once that became successful, they moved into the core. Hmm. So, uh, obviously, that was scrapped to make a spur line down to the uh, GO station, which, you know, I'm all for, simply because it means connectivity, as you're mentioning out at the at the other end of the city. Uh, mm-hmm. So now that there is no spur line, uh, I guess all that money is going to the A-line as opposed to taking it back out to Eastgate. Correct. And, and the issue, I think, comes down to the fact that the plan keeps changing, and at this point, we don't know what the operating costs are. And successful LRTs, like in Europe, if we want to bring Europe to Hamilton, we should really be thinking about connecting city to city, um, first and foremost, in my opinion, rather than you know going right into the core. Keep in mind as well, in Salt Lake City, where the LRT is very successful, Scott, they have four lanes on one side of the train, four lanes on the other. Mm. And then when you go into the downtown core, it's two lanes on one side, two lanes on the other. Um, So you're still able to access your businesses. You're allowed to load. Uh, you know, yeah, that's like that's like Calgary. It's the same sort of way that mm-hmm. way. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, so that makes it easy for business owners to have accessibility. With our plan, we have no accessibility whatsoever to anybody on that line. So it, it, it doesn't. Uh, we're almost out of time. That, that almost seems like a little to change your mind. What will sway you back? The extension to Eastgate. It's a hard one. Um, At this point, I don't even know if that's possible due to the money. We're still waiting to find out what the operating costs are of this project. Um, I I strongly believe that successful LRTs are connecting us from city to city. And we've always, you know, had to rely on broken promises that we're being told that something's going to happen. And it doesn't end up happening. So I would, you know, prefer to just connect us to city to city or, you know, right. directly to Good the point. Go. Good point. Cheryl St. James has been with us, who's been attending the meetings down at City Hall. Cheryl, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Liz Marzari is with us. She is a national representative for Unifor. Unifor and CHCHTV have reached a deal for those who lost their jobs way back in December 2015. Remember that? Uh, to find out more, Liz is with us now. Hello, Liz. How are you today? I'm well, thank you, Scott. I guess a good day for you guys. It, it was a good day. I mean, it's disappointing that it wasn't more money, but we're happy that we have a deal and have some some closure for the members who were let go. So uh, explain to us exactly what happened here and how did we get here? So it, you know, as your listeners will probably remember, it started 15 months ago, December 11th, 2015, when uh, Channel 11 Limited Partnership, which was the person who employed our members, uh, declared bankruptcy and terminated everyone. Um, They then started operations again, 
with many of our members under a new company. Uh, Unifor filed a number of uh, complaints with the Canada Labour Board, and we were starting down that process. Uh, there was some interest on both sides on seeing if we could reach a settlement deal. So we, with the assistance of the board, went into mediation talks. And the deal we have now is the result of those talks. So as it stands now is CHCHTV, is it, is it a unionized shop still? It is a unionized shop. That was part of the settlement. So for those members that were not rehired, they will see a monetary settlement that includes what they are entitled to uh, in terms of severance under the Canada Labour Code, um, in addition to a damages, a general damages payment, the total of those payments together to everyone will total just over a million dollars, a million and one dollars. The members who remain at CHCHTV are represented uh, by Unifor. There is a recognition of a collective agreement, essentially the same agreement that they had uh, prior to the bankruptcy. There's no changes to wages. Uh, there are some minor tweaks. They were in bargaining prior to the bankruptcy, so there were some changes that had been agreed to prior to that, and they're incorporated in the new agreement. And significantly for the union, we've received an admission that the original company, the Channel 11 LP, actually engaged in an unfair labor practice under the code in how they treated the employees. So would the employees who are still working for the station and you know were invited to go back... Yeah. Uh, would they have gone back at less money than what they were earning prior to all of this? They did not. They were hired back um, in the same wages under the collective agreement right. or the wages that were in the collective agreement. Some of them may have gone to a different position, which may have changed what they were compensated at, but the wages were comparable to what they were being paid. Uh, and 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 this, if this hit, I guess the simple question is, did they get what they should have got? Uh, well, they certainly didn't get what the severance was provided for under the collective agreement, uh, which was two weeks per year of service. The Canada Labour Code is two days per year of service. Uh, so those that's a significant change, um, significantly less than they were in The Canada Labour Code is two days for every... Two days per year of service. But that's unskilled labour, is it not? Yeah, that's for everybody under the Canada Labour Code. Yeah, but if you were to take that to court with an average employer, I mean, you'd, you'd certainly would get more than that. That's for a basic... And that's why unions negotiate the wages that we do and the rates that we do and the severance packages that we do. However, when you have a case of a bankrupt employer, right, the, the actual employer was bankrupt. They had debt in excess of $3 million with assets of $60,000. So there there really was no money in the in the bankrupt entity. Right. Um, clearly, clearly, clearly the station wanted to downsize. Yes. Could this have been avoided? We believe it could have been avoided. They could have followed the provisions under the collective agreement, done the layoff as, as per the terms of the agreement and reduced staff in that way. But they didn't have the money to do that. But I don't think they had the money to do it. So why can't you just come to an agreement instead of going, you know, because obviously they don't have the money to do it. That's why the, the settlement is what, what it is. This happened yeah. back in 2015. Why couldn't this all have been hashed out back then? We asked the same question at the time. The company gave no notice to the union, no indication to the union uh, that this was coming. We'd actually filed for conciliation, which is the process when the parties are in bargaining and they can't reach an agreement. You get a federal conciliator appointed to help you. They didn't advise the conciliator. We had one day of conciliation meetings 
uh, prior to the, the day that they filed for bankruptcy. So, so they were simply bleeding money. They, uh, they were bleeding money, yes. That's probably a good description. So, uh, so what do they or you take from this moving forward? How does this not happen again? Well, the union feels that the way that we've uh, structured with the new company, so our bargaining rights are now with the two, they've created two new numbered companies where the employees are hired, and there's the the company that owns the license. So with the new collective agreement, our bargaining rights are with both of those numbered companies as well as the company that actually owns the station license. So it won't happen again in the way that it did. If the station's not able to operate anymore, it would cease up. If they, it would have to cease operations. If it doesn't, they would continue to be operating, and they'd have to pay any obligations if they do lay off. I guess the point that that some are saying in all of this, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, Liz, well, is that um, you know having a station is better than having no station at all. If this is what they can afford to do, this is what they can afford to do. Uh, you know, they, they needed to, to purge 100 employees. They obviously couldn't afford to do it the way that the union wanted them to do it. So how do you, how do you arrive at a compromise here without, you know, ending up terminating, uh, terminating a whole pile of people at Christmas and leaving them with nothing for a year before you get it all figured out? Well, I mean, I hope that the station has learned their lesson, that there are better ways and more appropriate ways to do things and that it won't happen, that they've actually now structured themselves and and their operations in such a way that, that they can meet their obligations and can meet their costs and that we won't be in this position, you know, a year or two years or five years down the road. It is a challenge. Local news um, is challenging. It's, media business is a challenging business right now. There's lots of pressures on those businesses. Is this company as nimble as it needs to be? And does the union... Um Slow that process down. Does the union prevent them from being nimble? Some would have said. Some would have said in the past that's how they got to where they are. They just they they couldn't stay competitive. They couldn't stay nimble. They had to support all this staff, and we ended up with a train wreck. I don't believe so. I think that Unifor has a long track record of working with employers. Um, we certainly have lobbied hard um, to support local news, which include you know which is really supporting the employers who employ our members. Um, with Parliament, we think that there should be some support from the government for local news. It's important to communities. It's important to people. Uh, so I think we've demonstrated that we're willing to uh, work with people. We want our employers to be nimble. We want to have successful businesses, and we want our members to remain employed. We think the work they do is important. Uh, winners, losers here. How do you how do you figure it out? Who's the winner? Who's the loser? Are there are there losers? Are there winners? I don't know that I would describe anyone as losers or winners. I think it was we've made the best of a bad situation. Um, hopefully, our you know many of our members who were not reemployed by CHCH have gone on to find other work in the industry. Some have changed what they're doing, and hopefully, this this additional payment will will help soften that that transition for them or ease that transition. I hope that our members who have remained employed with CHCH will have a long career with the station. They are dedicated people and dedicated to the community that they service. And, and I hope that they'll have a long career 
uh, being able to continue doing that. Uh, there were some employees that were let go that, that had been there for like 30 years. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a million dollars. It's roughly 100 employees. That's roughly, what, 10 grand per person. How do you divide that up equally? How does, how does a person who's been there for 20, 30 years uh, get the severance that they deserve? Well, the, as I said, the, the portion of the settlement that is severance, it is actually a calculation. Mm-hmm. It's two days per year of service plus the, the termination pay and notice pay. And then the damages portion will be will be apportioned after that is done. Hmm. All right. Uh, Liz uh, Mazari has been with us, National Representative for Unifor. Unifor and CHCH have reached a deal for those who lost their jobs back in December 2015. Liz, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you, Liz. And let's bring in Ian Lee. Ian Lee is, of course, business professor at uh, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Hello, Ian. How are you today? I'm doing just fine, thanks. Uh, Ian, I, you know, I look at this and I still wonder what the heck happened and how everybody got away with it. Winners, losers here. What is your take on this final settlement? Uh, first off, it was uh, very clearly, let's get that out right away, that it was clearly a tragedy what happened to uh the employees who were terminated on such very short notice just before Christmas. Yeah. And some had been there their, essentially their entire working life. And, um, and it's my understanding that not all of them have been able to find employment since. So this is, this is a, you know, it's a human tragedy without any doubt. Yeah. Uh, I've been reading into this, you know, Scott, and the, the more I read about this, the messier and the murkier it gets. This uh, company, or the principals, let's not talk about the company, the principals, behind this company had been uh, fighting for years, uh, literally going back to 2005. And uh, this story was well covered in the, uh, in the Hamilton newspaper, but it was also a lot of the story is in the um, uh, testimony that, uh, before the CRTC here in uh, Ottawa, well, technically in Gatineau, but that's just across the river from Ottawa. And uh, it, it appears that, uh, and I, I want to put forward um, a prob- possibly a slightly different uh, interpretation, and and I do want to note to you and your listeners that I'm not saying this is as the gospel truth. These are my interpretations. First and foremost, there's no question that the economics of uh, broadcasting, as we know, is uh, has turned very dramatically for the worse in the last two, three, four years. Uh, revenues are down because of the online media is attracting. I'm talking the Googles and the Facebooks and other companies like that are attracting more and more advertising. And so that advertise, those advertising dollars, a lot more of those dollars, are migrating from radio and television. Not all of them, but some of it is migrating uh, to, to online. And uh, so the, there is a, and, and the audiences are fragmenting as well. So my, advertisers with the dollars are leaving the, the stations, and of course the, the radio stations and the broadcast television stations are absolutely dependent on the revenues they receive from advertisers. That's how they pay the bills. And so that's declining. They're losing some of their listeners and viewers. That's declining. But, and so I, I, I'm, right, I'm acknowledging that. And then on top of that, there was restructuring in Ottawa in terms of the broadcast fund that helped out local broadcasters right. with assistance from Ottawa. So there's another variable in the mix. But then on top of that, there seemed to be this toxic mix between the owners of the company that was going on for years and years, and that in turn led to a, an ever more convoluted ownership structure 
that got the CRTC involved. And there was, it seems from the questions of Mr. Blair, who is the chair of the CRTC, and to, just for the benefit of your, of your listeners, the CRTC regulates television in Canada uh, under, under the, there's two or three critical acts of Parliament, because uh, I don't want to get in the weeds, but uh, the Supreme Court decided back in the 1930s that television waves, electromagnetic waves, are the property of the government of Canada, essentially. And uh, they have the right to regulate them. That's where they got their authority, the same in the United States. And so radio and television is regulated by the Fed and not by the province of Ontario, for example. And and that's where the CBC came from back in the mid-30s, and that's where the first regulator came from. And then it evolved and you know, eventually uh, got transformed into the CRTC, which is this regulatory body that has real teeth because they grant you your license. And if you, as an entrepreneur running a radio station or running a television station in Canada, do not have a license or you lose your license, you are out of business. You can't just go and it's not like opening up a men's clothing store or a women's clothing store. You just go there and... <laughs> and so how it. are they allowed to do what they did, meaning the company? Right. Uh, the, when you get a license, and I, again, I won't go into the weeds on this. I'm going to say very big picture. But essentially, and this applies to CTV and CBC, the big guys and the little guys. When you, as a broadcaster, radio or television... Uh, receive a license from the CRTC, it is typically for three years. And then you have to renew it. So it's almost like leasing, if you know what I mean. Just like a, uh, an individual leases an apartment. So you have this lease or right to broadcast for three years. Uh, typically it's three years. But it, it's more complicated than that because this isn't just, oh, well, go off and do your own thing. They're very tightly regulated, the stations, that both the television and, and uh, radio, in terms of what they can broadcast, especially the so-called specialty stations or local stations. In other words, they're given a mandate. You can broadcast movies, uh, but you can't broadcast documentaries, or you can broadcast documentaries, but not full-length movies, yeah, and, and so on. So they give each, and this is, it can, these are conditions in the license. And if you violate the license, and by the way, this company, there are a whole series of uh, allegations that they were violating their, their license, which is their commitment to the CRTC, and they were getting into trouble with the CRTC. And the CRTC, let's be clear again, they're the policemen, if I can use uh, you know, more colorful language, the CRTC is the policeman. Of, of the broadcast of broadcast companies. So I, I don't want to get too much into the weeds no. with the CRTC stuff. I want to stick more to the business yeah, okay. aspect of it in the sense that uh, this was a company that was in trouble. They were trying to be a lot more nimble than they were. They yeah. obviously had to downsize. How did they get away with doing this? And in the end, who's, who's the winner here? Because it seems to me that in the end, they got rid of the employees they wanted to get rid of. They didn't pay them the severance they had to pay them. They're still up and running. Yeah. And yet, uh, and the union Union's got its membership back, and the unions. I'm sorry, said again. And, and the union has their membership back for, well, for the remaining employees because remaining it's, ones, it's still right, a, it's still a union shop. Yeah. You, well, you first off, you can't you can't get around the uh, the union legislation. Uh, if a company is unionized, you can't get around it just by closing down. I mean, there is, and again, I don't want to get into the weeds now on union legislation, but my understanding is Unifor did file an application precisely alleging that this company was trying to use their their bankruptcy essentially to get around 
the uh, the uh, uh, the requirement to. But in fact, Mar- but in fact, Ian, have they not done that? Isn't that exactly what's happened? They paid a cost. They ended up paying less severance than they needed to pay. The station's still up and running. The union's happy. It's still a unionized shop. The only people who are really unhappy are the ones that are out of work. That's right. And unfortunately, they didn't get the money that they were supposed to get. I, I'm only reason I'm hesitating is not because I'm disagreeing with you at all, Scott. I just want to be careful because I don't have all my facts at hand, mm-hmm. but um, because it's a very complex file, I assure you. Right. I've been spending the last hour and a half reading this, and uh, you know, and I'm used to reading complex files. I'm a former banker, but my goodness me. But yes, I'm not ducking your question. It would appear that in this instance, you know, let me back up for one moment. If I've long argued in this country, if you're a really big company, a really big company, you know, a CTV, a bank, that sort of thing, you will not, contrary to all the stereotypes, the big guys always get away with it. The big guys are precisely the ones that don't get away with it. Because they're so big, they're so bureaucratic, they have so many assets mm-hmm. that governments can go after, unions can go after. As a result, they tend to be very, they go a lot, they, they obey the law, and if they don't, you can bring them to heel uh, uh, very quickly. The people who skate and sometimes get away with uh, breaking the law, or at least, shall we say, bending the law significantly, are companies like this company. They're small enough. They're not, they're not large. They're not on everybody's radar screen. They're not national companies. They don't attract the national media's attention. And they don't have a huge amount of assets. And so it becomes questionable whether it's worth going after the company for a union or for a government regulator if you know that it's not worth it at the end of the day because they're just, they just don't have a lot of assets. So it's small to medium-sized companies, and I'm not suggesting all small, medium-sized companies act unethically or in a, inappropriately. I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying that that's where the abuses occur, I think, more than uh, amongst big companies because you can bring them to heel very, very quickly uh, to, to obey the law. And in this instance, it looks like they were able to uh, get around it by using numbered companies, closing com- companies down, right. opening new numbered companies, and essentially starting over again. So here's my question to you, Ian. Here we have a private company, and like you said, not a big conglomerate attached to it. They're right. trying to r- run a local TV station. Uh, they've got a union with, with, with a long heritage and, and a lot of employees that have been there for a long time. They need to be nor- more nimble. They need to downsize. How, how, how do this, does the union and the company come to an agreement on this with, before this sort of thing happens? I mean, you know, in, in the private industry, uh, without a union, it seems that there's more legal avenues to take. Um, I'm going to disagree with you in this instance. Uh, and normally, you know, we, we agree on most of our, our the subjects we debate. But in this instance, uh, I think that Unifor, I'll give them full credit that, uh, for negotiating this. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, I mean, I think there's two variables here. Uh, first off, uh, Unifor, I think, was particularly aggressive, uh, which is their job uh, mm-hmm. as a union. And then secondly, I think the complicating factor was the CRTC. And uh, so I think that Unifor had uh, information, and they were doing, obviously, they were doing research inside. And that information, I do not know if they turned it over to the CRTC. I don't even know if they were threatening to turn it over to the CRTC. I, it seems to me that the leverage that Unifor had right. over this company, or the uh, principals, the entrepreneurs that are running this company, was that if they didn't come to some kind of a mutually acceptable agreement, I am certain that Unifor would have been taking this this information, mm-hmm. this data, to 
the CRTC, mm. and the threat then could be would be that the CRTC can revoke your license. Pull the license you can actually yeah. have your license revoked. By the so way. how does this not happen again between these two entities? Because this is still a struggling TV station and a union that's defending its employees. Where's the happy medium? How do they both uh, well, survive? I, I know this is going to sound like a cliche, but they've just got to become more transparent. I mean, the days of old, uh, and I mean old, of yore, and I mean 20, 30 yeah. years ago, when companies could just act unilaterally and keep everyone in the dark, those days are gone. There's just too many outlets out there, notwithstanding the changes in the media. There's so many social media sites. There's so many uh, uh, jur- micro-journalists and blog sites. There's so many whistleblowers. There's so much whistleblowing legislation that you can't play these games anymore and get away with it. There's somebody watching you somewhere. Hmm. You can't hide. And so if that's the case, then you should just be more transparent and say, look, people, we're losing money. You know, the market has changed completely. The bucks don't add up, and this is where we're going, and this is what we're going to do. And I think that there's going to, they would be surprised at the support that they would find, if indeed they're not lying, if they're not, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, cooking uh, the, the, the data. If they come forward with a straightforward situation showing their viewership is down by X percent, their revenues are down by Z percent, you know, I think that there's going to be uh, more support for them in the court of public opinion. And I think from the regulators, from the regulatory body, uh, they will be more sympathetic as well. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Why has there been an increase in complications of strep throat? Media reports have been showing more causes, or sorry, cases of strep throat that have led to very serious conditions uh, which required amputation. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Dr. Jeffrey Pernicka is with us, MD and an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics and head of the Division of Pediatrics Infectious Disease, McMaster University, and is with us now. Hello, Jeffrey. How are you today? I'm well. You? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, what is strep throat? How is it different from a traditional sore throat, if there is such a thing? So uh, strep throat is just when people have a sore throat and they are found to have the group A strep germ in the back of their throat. So, uh, it, it, I mean, I, it's a common form of sore throat. It, it's not that severe. We do give antibiotics for people uh, who have strep throat, and that's primarily to prevent them from developing something called rheumatic fever, which is so rare that I think most of your listeners wouldn't ever have seen or heard of a case before. But uh, strep throat is a really common cause of, of sore throat um, in adults, but even more so in children. So uh, when you see this come into an office and you've detected that that's this what the person has, you prov- do you always provide antibiotics? Generally speaking, I mean, so if somebody is complaining of a sore throat, um, especially if they've got a fever and some swollen glands, and you do a test and you find the, the group A strep germ there at the back of the throat, the standard would be to give them a course of penicillin. Because mm-hmm. all group A strep is sensitive to penicillin, which, as you know, is like the, the first antibiotic that was ever discovered. Yeah. Yeah. So, and how does it react to that? Because we've often heard that uh, germs do not, or these sorts of, maybe not necessarily these, but others do not react the way that they always did. Does this still seem to be a great way to, uh, to battle this? 
So every group A strep that's ever been characterized in the history of the world has always been susceptible to penicillin. We have lots of problems with other kinds of superbugs, uh, MRSA, all this stuff that, uh, you know, these other germs that you hear about coming out of, out of Asia and whatnot, but not group A strep. It is exquisitely sensitive to even just plain penicillin. So this theoretically can be prevented. Uh, do you mean... Uh, I mean, I guess, complica- yeah, complications from it. See, what, treating it is, is not an issue. So, absolutely. So, so treating it, so there is never a problem finding an antibiotic to treat group A strep because they are all sensitive to penicillin. I think what we've been seeing in the paper is uh, increased sort of media reporting around severe cases of invasive group A strep disease, which in contrast to when it just causes a throat infection can be very serious. Um, and even though we have antibiotics that work, if people are very sick by the time they start antibiotics, you know, they can have um, uh, unfortunate sequelae of that infection. And I, I think uh, people have, have seen uh, pictures of, of um, necrotic or um, black uh, fingers and toes and, and people being very sick in the hospital, that sort of thing. So, uh, obviously, this is relatively common. At what point does a doctor become concerned that this is moving beyond that and perhaps into these other areas that are more severe? So it doesn't usually happen that strep throat gets worse. So just to put this in context, right, like it's very common to have this group A strep germ live in our throats. If you, you know, I might have it in my throat right now, you might have it in yours. If you go to some random, you know, grade six class and you swab everybody, I bet you, you know, half the kids have it in there. (laughs) So it's normal to be around. Um, And uh, even if you didn't treat strep throat with antibiotics, it's very likely that it would just go away by itself and nothing bad would happen. Um, so I think a lot of the, the, the reporting that you've seen, these severe cases, are not of strep throat that wasn't recognized, but are completely uh, separate um, illnesses when this group A strep goes into the bloodstream or goes deep into the muscle and starts causing problems there. Um, so I don't want people to worry that, uh-oh, that I might have strep throat, and if I don't treat the strep throat, I'll get fleshing disease or, or die. Exactly. That is, yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, even though, so if you, if you, if we're, we're talking about group A strep, and the vast majority of group A strep just causes pharyngitis or often does nothing at all, those group A streps under the microscope look the same as these as group A streps that cause invasive fleshing disease and kill people. But in fact, they're usually different strains. Mm. And so if you analyze their DNA, they'd be different ones. And the, the, this, there are far, far, far fewer strains of really worrisome group A strep that cause this kind of invasive disease, um, which is why public health will track uh, invasive or life-threatening group A strep. And if there are people that have been in contact with somebody with severe disease, sometimes they go on antibiotics just to try to kill the germ in case it's jumped to their close contacts, if you know what I mean. So this is more about a different strain of strep than it is a strep that is left to fester or perhaps goes untreated and becomes this. It, that that's, is that's almost not the case. always the case. Right. Even though we're talking about group A strep for all of these, in general, it is the, the strains that cause invasive, terrible disease are different than the strains that cause regular disease. And the ones that are common and found on, on us and our children are the regular kinds of strains, uh, 
almost invariably. So what do we know about these severe strains? Do we know where they come from, how they get to the point of flesh-eating disease? That's a good question, actually. And, and, and I, I think we don't know exactly where they came from, um, because if we did, we probably would have done something long before now. Um, in, invasive infections like this tend to, to sort of ebb and flow. Um, there was a number of cases of flesh-eating disease that came up in Thunder Bay uh, about a decade ago. Um, and so resources were poured in to try to eradicate those strains, and that seemed to work. Right now, what it seems like across the country is that cases of invasive disease are slightly higher than sort of previous three-year averages, but there is no place in the country at the current time that's having an outbreak. So I don't think people need to, you know, um, go see their doctors to figure out how to protect themselves or do anything different in their, in their daily lives. Um, I, I think people w- are, are probably just best to, to continue as they always been. Um, if you do get ill with a, uh, with a fever and feel unwell, go see your doctor. If you've got a bit of a sore throat um, and no real fever, and you don't feel all that unwell, it's probably just a viral strep throat, and I don't think you need to go see anybody. So are doctors uh, less concerned about these types of invasive diseases? Uh, do they spread easily? So they spread person to person. And I, I as, an infectious, uh, as an infectious disease physician, am always concerned when I have patients with invasive group A strep disease. Because even though, okay, all of them are susceptible to penicillin, they are they are often, or they can be anyway, quite severe. Um, and again, uh, people are maybe familiar with some of the reporting that's been done. So I think they're always a, a, a concern. Um, uh, but I, I, I think for the, the vast majority of the population, um, they don't need to do anything different w- in terms of uh, watching out for uh, mild sore throat in themselves and their family members. These invasive strains tend to pass person to person. And so when there is somebody with severe invasive disease, we typically uh, go to the, the family and other close contacts and give them antibiotics to try and, and prevent those close contacts and family members from also developing severe disease. Once you get something like an invasive disease, a flesh-eating disease, this sort of thing, is it treatable? Is it you've just got to try to get ahead of it by amputation? So, I mean, that, that's a difficult question to answer. In, I certainly have seen numerous cases of, children's who, of children who were very ill with invasive group A strep disease and, and recovered just fine. I've also seen cases where um, children present and they're already quite ill and there are lingering after effects from the infection. So it, it, it's, it's, it's hard to say, you know, in a general way how someone's going to turn out. Uh, it seems that we're hearing more of this in the last decade or so. Has this always been around? Why are we hearing more about it now? So I'm not sure if rates are really substantially higher now than they were, uh, higher now than, than 10 years ago, uh, for example. Um, I think severe invasive group A strep disease, whether it's flesh-eating disease or severe pneumonias or toxic shock, has always been around. Um, certainly, uh, the descriptions that are coming now are 
very much in line with what we would expect for the worst of the worst if you're if you're talking about invasive group A strep. Um, so I don't necessarily think there has been any significant evolution in terms of how common the thing is over the past uh, decade. Um, there are manufacturers who are working in group A strep vaccine development uh, just because group A strep does cause, uh, besides all of the the, the terrible invasive disease we've been talking about, it does cause a fair amount of cellulitis and bone infections and other things. And so, I mean, I think it would be great if we had a workable, uh, effective group A strep vaccine because then we'd really see rates fall. How common is this and how common does it get to the point that we're hearing in the stories in the news regarding, you know, someone having to lose a limb due to flesh-eating disease? How often does that happen? So having group A stuff in your throat is unbelievably common. Mm -hmm. And I think lots of people have it. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have any symptoms, you don't need to do anything about it. You don't need antibiotics or anything. Strep throat is a very common thing. Everybody knows Everybody, everybody knows somebody in their family who's had strep throat, yeah. even if they haven't had it themselves. The kind of invasive disease that we're talking about is very rare. Yeah. So uh, estimates are, you know, um, one or two per hundred thousand. This, this is uh, hundred thousand people. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking percentages, then you know, 0.002% of the population is going to come down with this sort of thing. So the average person has a 99.998% chance of never having this happen. Right. So it's quite a rare thing. So uh, you talked about this earlier, prevention, protection, just like any other flu, the typical stuff, wash your hands, be careful who you're around? I would say. A group A strep is so unbelievably common that... um, there's in the course of a day you probably uh have close contact with you know dozens of people who have it and so there will always be people um getting group A strep even if they're really careful about hand washing i totally agree with you hand washing is a great idea and obviously if you're someone who's been in close contact with somebody known to have invasive disease then uh, you should be talking to your doctor but that is that is very very few uh, uh, Ontarians today. Advantage to getting strep. In other words, does it help you build immunity? I wouldn't say. So uh, there, it's it's not as though you know getting strep throat makes you a stronger person for the for the rest of your life. I don't think it <laughs> it does the opposite either. So if I could wave a magic wand and have me never get strep throat again, then then I would do that. That's worth a couple of days. You're down <laughs> for the count. Yeah, yeah. There you go. All right. So uh, in the end, nothing to really be worried about. Just uh, obviously, if you're concerned, see your doctor. Absolutely. I don't think I the the. the at the end of the day, I don't think people need to do anything different with respect to how they care for themselves and their loved ones with sore throats. If the sore throat's really bad or there's a fever or they look unwell, then go see your doctor. If you've got a little bit of a sore throat, you're fine to stay at home and, and, and just keep hydrated. Dr. Jeffrey Pernica has been with us, MD and an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics and head of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Disease at McMaster. Jeffrey, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. Have a great day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.